All right, I'm Kevin Libwit, joined by Andrew Page. We're from Fusion, and this is the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. And this and maybe a couple few episodes we're going to be dedicating to exploring COG UK, or really introducing maybe even COG UK to a couple of folks, this being one of the premier consortiums of SARS-CoV-2 sequencing that really became the model of a lot of international uh, groups that were addressing this exact problem in terms of setting up sequencing analysis and reporting during the COVID-19 pandemic. Andrew, you obviously played a huge role in that. So maybe if you don't yeah. mind giving a, a first an introduction and overview of, of what is COG UK, what was intent, how it was started, and uh, we can start there. Yeah, so it was the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium. Uh, it sounds very grand actually, but you know, it was uh, a lot of people who knew each other from the UK scene and genomics scene, because it's a, very, it's a small country, small world, everyone knows everyone else. A lot of people from bacteria and infectious diseases in humans, um, you know, you go to some conferences and stuff. So we did all know each other. And so come about March uh, 2020, there were calls going around to get some sequencing up and running. I was in a Quadram Institute at that point, and we were thinking, OK, let's get the primers in. You know, Arctic had uh, released their, their primer set for a size cup too. Let's get the primers in. And we can be ready to go. And then, you know, we're doing back of an envelope calculations that we could do so much testing and so much, uh, so much sequencing. We don't, you know, we'll, we'll just do it anyway. And I got a few test samples in from um, one of the hospitals in London uh, through Justin O'Grady, who then got COVID because of that. Um, just being down in London, you know, going on tubes and, and like like the subway. Um, and so God UK kind of got kicked off. I was... Uh, Share, I shared an office with a part-timer called um, Tom Connor. He was never in the office, but he still had a desk beside me. And uh, so he got in touch with us and was like, hey, would you guys like to be, you know, in a little, do a bit of genome sequencing? We're like, yeah, sure. We didn't know was there any money in it or whatever. That wasn't the point. It was just, you know, everyone was kind of rallying around to help out. I was in jury duty at the time. Uh, and then the cases all collapsed because, you know, everything was just going to hell. And I got exempted then uh, because of the type of work that I do, um, along with most of the jury, because everyone had an excuse. Um, and so I went back to work immediately. And so, yeah, we started planning for sequencing. And we just got a press release on a Sunday evening, you know, a day or two later saying, oh, we, you know, we got like $20 million or $20 million pounds, uh, for sequencing as a grand, you know, we'll kick things off. And so the general idea of it was decentralized sequencing to just use our local contacts to get as much sequence as possible. Um, so, you know, it was well, maybe 13, 15 different centers around the UK, universities, mm -hmm. uh, public health research institutes, that kind of stuff, public health bodies. And we just linked in with the doctors and, and the, the local hospital departments that we knew. And we're, you know, we're setting everything up to get samples in to, to sequence. And actually we got through ethics and paperwork in, in super quick time because everyone you know was really really motivated to push things through as fast as possible um and Around so we what started, was this 2020 you say it's still early 2020. was late march 2020 and so i think the first sequencing like live sequencing we did was april the 8th of april 2020 so i took about a week to get live samples in previously we had um you know, we, we were getting samples, we were retrospectively sequencing. 
Um, so that's when he kicked things off. And then we didn't stop sequencing for two years. We did sequencing every single week, uh, week in, week out, no matter what time of year. And it was the same with the rest of the consortia. So my role was initially as the kind of PI for that little region, um, along with a guy called Justin O'Grady. We kind of split down the middle. He was doing the wet lab stuff and I was doing the biomatics. Then later he went to nanopore. So then I was just leading the whole uh, kind of production side and getting stuff out the door, which is kind of hard. Um, but it helped that, you know, funding wasn't an issue, you know, it was just do what you need to do with a lot of support yeah. from all the the higher ups in our organizations. Just uh, don't worry about money. We'll sort that out. Um, you guys just, you know, go sequence. And all that data was being fed into one big database um, in the in MRC Climb, which is like the cloud computing system for academics. And it was being put together. So you can't see my hand gestures, Jesus. <laughs> uh, but it was being put together um in climb and then that then people were writing another team were writing reports on top of that and i yeah. was going up to sage this scientific advisory group for emergencies in the uk and so that was advising government directly and so they were getting the scientific evidence for government to make informed decisions using um data and around that time the uk was, was responsible for more than half of all um sars-cov-2 data in the world and it's because at that time the US wasn't um wasn't really sequencing much because for political reasons, which we won't go into. But uh <laughs> when there's a change of leadership, a different podcast. Are... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, I am curious because in that uh retelling of the narrative of the origin stories, there's kind of a an important section there that I'm most interested in that you kind of glossed over where it went from an informal group of scientists who are were doing the things they would have been doing anyways. Um, you know, in terms of sequencing emerging infectious diseases and collaborating. But then there was something you mentioned, and then there was 20 million pounds to fund it. So how it went from yeah. sort of an in, informal group of a ragtag group of scientists doing what they do into a government funded consortium that was now dedicated resources to this. So what, what did that conversation look like? And, um, you know, how much of that was success was of COG UK was dependent on all this uh, pre-existing infrastructure of, you know, high quality sequencers, bioinformatics knowledge, and the sort of uh, communication tracks already put in play across the different. Uh, yeah. So um, Sharon, Sharon Peacock led this, so Professor Sharon Peacock from the University of Cambridge, she led the consortium and, you know, did the paperwork to get money. Um, and the bar was very, very low at that point. It was anyone who can help in any way possible you know, money was being shoveled out the door. Like the, it was, it was good that there were, the resources were made available as quickly as possible. And so she led consortium, and a few other people uh, were the official PIs and that. And the secretariat was in the University of Cambridge, and so she brought everyone together. But you know, it's a small world, and so I previously worked with her in uh, the Sanger Institute, um, because she had a joint position there, and. Uh, I've worked with some of the other PIs, you know, we've been friends with them or at my conferences. So it was a, it was a very much a, a pre-made community that just was all put set aside their rivalries that are very common in academia and just kind of mucked in and started sequencing. And from the very outset, it was we want to sequence, get an idea of surveillance and then make the data publicly available as quick as possible 
And so it was always very much get the data into the public domain. We don't know what we can do with it. Um, and there were downsides as well, because if, you know, if you're doing half the world sequencing, then of course, anytime someone finds something, they'll go, oh, well, that, that's a UK problem. You know, it's, we can trace yeah. it back to there, but it's simply because of volume. Um, and we were sequencing crazy amounts, you know, like uh, I think at one point in the summer of 2020, my group had sequenced like 40% of all positive cases in the area. So it's very yeah. high density. Sorry, people hospitalized. Um, so it's very high density at that time. Um, and at the time, you know, methods were still being refined and developed yeah. and costs were coming down massively. Like initially, I think it was about 75 pounds to sequence one sample. And, you know, then that cost kept getting hammered, you know, as people refined the methods and, you know, tweaking the reactions. What, what what was that process like? Because you talked about academia now, we, or rather in previous episodes, we talked about the difference of academia and public health, where in academia, you're always kind of bleeding the edge, always trying to tweak and, and optimize different protocols. Whereas in public health, you want standardization across all these teams. So whenever you have academic entities that are now reorienting themselves to be sort of a public arm service, what did that look like? How what, what, Was it quick buy-in from everybody? Okay, it uh, looks like Andrew got the bioinformatics tool. Everyone use that. He's got, uh, you know, Justin's got the wet lab approach. Everyone use that. Or, or what was that communication like, that transition for academia academics to play public health? It, it was complete opposite to that. It was <laughs> the the benefit of ha having academics is the rapid innovation uh, um, because there was no set way to do things. So what we did was as much innovation as possible, you know, in different ways of tackling the same problem. So, you know, like people using Nanopore and Illumina, you know, there's no fixed way of doing it. People are doing different protocols, different variants of protocols. Sure, it introduces batch effects and stuff like that. But overall, it meant that we could get there quicker. We could find solutions quicker. And when one, one protocol wasn't necessarily working, you know, there's others to fall back on. And so that helped drive a lot of the very rapid um, expansion of, of this stuff. Um, it, it was difficult for academics, I think, because having to switch from a, a product from an academic research retrospective look to a production, you know, is, is quite difficult. And then, you know, over time, there was, you know, pressure to reduce the turnaround times, you know. And I think one time we got from sample to result and like under a day, like I think it was like 12 hours, you know, when, when you know, when you really need to push things out, you could. But it was very much about um, that innovation. And then, you know, we guys in the lab um, who would be tweaking the reactions as they went along and, you know, finding that actually they don't need to add as much, you know, at this point, they can, you know, kind of trim it down and then save money and save time, cut out steps. Because, you know, steps aren't necessarily always, always useful. Like you'd have things written in protocols, like you have to keep the DNA on ice. And it's like, well, you don't actually... That's someone's written it in somewhere and it's been mantra, but actually it's, it's stable for weeks, you know, <laughs> like uh, just sitting on a bench, you know? Yeah. And um, sorry, the CDNA and things like that. So, it, you know, it was about changing and finding the best route to things. And we found things accidentally working. Like one time uh, we did four reverse reads, but uh, the reverse fails. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the four data was actually very usable. And it's like, okay, well, now we know we need half the data. You know? <laughs> um, and all these things accidentally happening to, to help us refine stuff. But but what an incredible story and, and 
like narrative of how powerful collaboration can be, especially in sometimes where it could be quite competitive in uh, in academia. And then also that, that bridge between academia and public health, even making sure that that communication was strong and, and how much sequencing data, how really real time it got to. You're talking about 12 hour turnaround time. That's always been sort of the goal is real time genomic analysis. And so I think from COG UK, and as I said in the beginning, it set precedent of like what a, a a collaborative consortium could do and look like for other uh you know international entities like in the U.S. spheres you know a lot of us uh, on that on the U.S. side of things we're looking at what the heck is Cog UK doing how are they setting up these uh, collaboration communication like we should be doing this uh, as well and then obviously uh, Canada something similar with with the Kankagen and and others around the world um so clear impact of uh, during the pandemic can can you speak to how at least in the UK, has it forever changed those uh, collaborative walls? Or like now that we're we're kind of, you know, at least past the, the craziest of, of those COVID-19 waves, what role does COG UK play right now or, or those relationships and, and how has it changed kind of the, the spirit of communication? I guess it proved that the utility of genomics, yeah. uh, you know, because the amount of information and data and for the first time the public were thinking, about genomics and surveillance and things like that. You know, people that people who probably never heard of before that, but you know, politicians and everyone, you know, were now focused on that and they understood it. And that's that mindset change has helped a lot for for everything, you know. So now there's less of a barrier to translate the academic stuff into into the clinical lab and into public health. Um so yeah, we've broken down barriers and we probably advanced 10 years in terms of just that governance and thinking. Um, so that, which is fantastic. And then academically, you know, well, people know each other now, uh, those friendships and links have been made and they won't be, you know, they'll go on forever and uh, as long as people are alive. Um <laughs> you know, so th that's a very good thing. And yeah, so it did advance that translation piece. Because for years, like I've been hearing, oh yeah, you know, we're translating it. I hope we hope to get into clinic, you know, in ten years, and this, you know, just really sped it up there. You know, it was suddenly yeah. it was, you know, we're actually doing stuff with genomics, with the data, and making decisions and changing policy as we go along. I, I think that's a good way to describe it. I've always looked at it similarly, where you know our conferences, our you know corners of the technical universe, we all kind of saw the impact and value of sequencing and how it can inform public health decisions. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the, the value became undeniable. It's like, okay, we need to understand what kind of lineages are spreading to inform the decisions that public health officials need to make. And so it became a, a required technology to be able to, to look at this kind of resolution. And as you said too, now that the, there's an obvious, it's in the public psyche of genomic data, public health, and infectious diseases. So now, even during the pandemic, when a lot of the investment came into play, the conversation was always how do we make this long-term and organism agnostic? How do we take the tools and infrastructure we're building for SARS-CoV-2 and ensure that we can also utilize those resources for TB, AMR, enteric pathogens, and all the like. So, um, but, but yeah, so COG UK played such a pivotal role in, in I think, changing uh, our understanding of, of how academic, public health, uh, and government institutions can work together you know, amazing thing that I think we're going to be talking about for a couple episodes, even, uh, you know, your specific role, some of the interesting uh, papers that came out of it and the like. But I think this was a good kind of original primer on COG UK. Anything else you want to you know, finish on to, to wrap up 
No, just, well, just it was a, a very busy few years, you know, during the Kogi K thing. I learned a lot. And, uh, yeah, I hope the lessons that have been learned will continue to be in the, uh, the public mind. And I think that's a spirit shared by by most. So, all right. Yeah, that yeah, we'll end it here and continue speaking about this in future ones.